Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Isaiah 1 through 12. And for me, this is the highlight of the Old Testament year. I love all the doctrines that we've covered, and we've seen some tremendous history. But for me, the highlight of an Old Testament year is when we get to the book of Isaiah. So before we even get started, let's talk about who Isaiah was. Um, Obviously, Isaiah was a prophet. He was born probably around 770 B.C., during the reigns of a couple strong Israelite kings, Jeroboam II and Uzziah in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam II was beautifying Samaria up north in Israel and expanding his country's borders and influence. This is a time of peace when Egypt isn't wrecking Israel and Assyria hasn't really risen. The big gorilla on the block for most of Isaiah's stuff, at least in the front bit, is going to be Assyria. So Assyria is going to rise up as a great power, and Egypt is going down as far as its influence. And so during this time period, both Israel to the north and Judah to the south have relative peace. And so because they do, they're able to sell stuff and have businesses, and I call it the Amazon times, right, where everything is going great and you can get good deals on your favorite little trinkets. And so because it was a time of peace for both these kingdoms, There was a strong economic base that increased, and what happened was we had the beginnings of great, wealthy, urban upper classes happening right in Israel and in Judah. But here's the problem. The lower classes and some of the folks that lived out in the countryside, they're experiencing increased taxes, and some of them are losing their land. Now, the Old Testament's really specific on what you're to do with your land, and it's to stay in the family, and that's really not happening. At least we think that's not happening. So there's this time period of social inequality. And then there's some hint, at least at the very beginning in Isaiah 1 and towards the end of Isaiah, that there's this condemnation of idolatry, at least in some bits here. So what do we have here? We've got wealth, social injustice, we've got some immorality, and we have great decadence, at least in some of the places. And so there's this false sense of security that some of the people in Israel have and some of the people in Judah have, and we have, with this false sense of security, increase in wealth. We have a rise of other warning voices at this time, too. We have Micah, who's a contemporary of Isaiah. In fact, some of Micah's stuff is directly quoted by Isaiah, or Isaiah is quoting some of Micah, like they're quoting each other. Somebody's quoting somebody because their stuff's in both books. We also have Amos, and we also have Hosea during this time period. Now, also, we know that he lived during the reign of kings. Now, the kings that he lived during the reign of are literally listed right there in the first bit in Isaiah 1, verse 1, and they are Uzziah, which is from 767 to 740, and in the year that he dies, that's when Isaiah gets his call, according to Isaiah 6. And Uzziah is described as righteous. Then we have Jotham from 740 to 732. Then we have Ahaz, and Ahaz dies when he's 36. He reigns from 732 to 716, and Ahaz is portrayed as a bad guy, and we're going to get into that in a bit. After Ahaz, his son Hezekiah is portrayed as righteous, and he dies in 687. And that's kind of the end as far as who's listed as the kings. But I want to throw this out there. Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who reigned from 687 to 642, although he's not described in Isaiah, 
in the ascension of Isaiah, he is. And this is an extra-biblical text, which I highly encourage you to read. We've linked it in the show notes. In the ascension of Isaiah, Manasseh kills Isaiah, and he saws him in half. And I think that's what's being referenced in Hebrews 11. When the author of Hebrews 11 talks about some of the prophets being slain, I think he's actually quoting the ascension of Isaiah chapter 5. You see, in Hebrews 11, we read that some of the prophets were, quote, stoned, sawn apart, and murdered with the sword. And if you've read the Old Testament, you're like, I've never read anybody being sawn apart. Well, now you have because you've heard of Isaiah's death, at least in the ascension of Isaiah, that's not in the Bible. So that's a little bit about the history of what's happening during the 700s politically. Assyria is rising up, and they're going to be the big gorilla on the block. We're going to talk a lot about Assyria. But during this time period, Israel's getting wealthy economically. Judah is increasing economically, but we have this disparity amongst the rich and the poor. So Isaiah comes right before the destruction of the northern tribes. We have a split kingdom. We're about the middle of Second Kings, if you want to go back to the historical chapters. And he prophesies right before the northern tribes will be taken by Assyria that's rising up. And he will live long enough to advise Hezekiah and some of the other kings of Judah as the Babylonian captivity creeps closer. So Isaiah to Nephi is about 100 years which is like us to some of the early prophets of this dispensation. That's even further than from us to Joseph Smith. So we loved the writings of Joseph Smith. We have these the papers of Joseph Smith, and we compile them, and I, for one, devour them. Well, that's even a bigger time span than from Nephi to Isaiah. So perhaps you can see why Isaiah meant so much to Nephi. That it was kind of like you and I quoting Joseph F. Smith or Wilford Woodruff, because it really wasn't that long ago. Now, to take you back, at the beginning of this year, Mike and I broke the Old Testament into nine time periods. Let me remind you of what those nine are. The creation and its aftermath was time period one, and then time period two was Abraham and that whole story of Genesis and Abraham and his family. Then time period number three is Egypt and trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt. That leads to time period number four, which is the desert, and then they end up wandering for 40 years. Time period number five is when we move back into the promised land. Joshua leads us back into the promised land, and we settle by tribes. There's not a whole lot of history to that time period other than the book of Joshua and a few others, but it was a significant time period. Then, time period number six, they want a king. And for a few kings, we have a unified kingdom. That was Saul, David, and Solomon, and they build the temple. And then there's a split in the kingdom. So time period number seven is the whole split kingdom. And this is where Isaiah fits. During time period number seven, the Assyrians will conquer the northern tribes, and they basically disappear. When the Babylonians come in and conquer the Jews, that leads to time period number eight, the Babylonian captivity. Prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel will talk about the captivity, the exile period. That's basically 586 to about 520 BC. That kind of gives you a time period. Yeah, and then that leads to time period number nine, which is the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple, which will slowly fade into the New Testament. There's about a 400-year gap, and then we fade into the New Testament. Now, if you look at the table of contents of the Old Testament, it doesn't necessarily flow in this time period. 
And that's why we did Ezra and Nehemiah and the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And then the Old Testament gives us a massive section, which is almost more than the previous section, of the writings of the prophets. We start with the poetry sections. So we did Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And now we jump into the prophets. If you look at the table of contents, what we have left to study in Come, Follow Me are a whole bunch of prophets. But if you don't take that prophet and put it back in the time period, you may miss some nuances and what's going on and why are they prophesying and what's the essence of their message. So Isaiah goes back to time period number seven where we have a split kingdom, relative peace because no one's going to be conquered for a while. And then the Assyrians are going to conquer the northern tribes. And then after that, we know that the Babylonians are coming in about a hundred years. Yes, exactly. Now, I don't mean to be confusing, but I always like to add a tenth time period to Bryce's list of nine, and that's the dawn of the apocalyptic. And by that, I mean there's a group of visionaries that have visions about forces of light and darkness, this great cosmic battle, that there's going to be this Messiah that's going to come and fix things. And a lot of these apocalyptic visionaries have to go underground because we have this tension in Judaism. And the tension is, do we have visionary men or do we not? Can God be seen or can he not? Do we believe in a father and a son and a divine mother or do we not? And the consensus is during the time period of the second temple period that we do not. And so a lot of them go underground. And so some scholars say that the dawn of apocalyptic is after the second temple is built. My contention is you can see the dawn of the apocalyptic in Isaiah's writings. Isaiah was an apocalyptic prophet, and so we're going to see that. We're also going to see this in the writings of this fellow named Nephi. Nephi is an apocalyptic prophet, and Nephi loves Isaiah. So just know that this is Mike Day's opinion. I don't think the dawn of the apocalyptic is second temple. I think it's actually earlier, but with this dawn of this apocalyptic group of prophets that have to go underground. That's, you know, if you've ever wondered, like, why do we not have any prophets after Malachi? From Malachi to Jesus, what what happened, right? You should read some of the stuff of the intertestamental period. There is, during this time period, a group of people that have these visionary experiences, and I would assert that the New Testament authors understand this, that they understood the conflict between light and darkness, and that there would be a Messiah. And they understood these things, and so when Jesus comes on the stage, they recognize him for who he is. So I love the nine time periods. I always like to throw in the 10th. I think it's fun. I love it. Now, before we jump into Isaiah, let's talk about where he ranks among the prophets, and probably the most significant accolade that we could give to Isaiah is that when Jesus comes to America, he quotes him, and tells the people to study them. I don't know of a greater endorsement you could get than the Savior himself saying, I want you to read the writings of Isaiah. Yeah. Look what happens in 3 Nephi 23. Right after Jesus stands before the Nephites and he quotes basically the 54th chapter of Isaiah, he says to the Nephites, Behold, I say unto you that you ought to search these things. Yea, a commandment I give unto you that ye search these things diligently, for great are the words of Isaiah. And then in a couple verses later, Nephi says this, All these things that he spake have been and shall be, even according to the words which he spake. 
I love 3rd Nephi 23.3. And the reason why I do is because I believe that that is how we should read Isaiah. The things that Isaiah saw have been and shall be. Isaiah really is so rich. And he is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the Book of Mormon and in the New Testament. And by the way, the community that kept the Dead Sea Scrolls loved Isaiah's stuff. There's more commentary on Isaiah and more of his stuff than pretty much anything else. He's a big deal. And one more accolade. Nephi says in 1 Nephi chapter 19 that he had access to all of the Old Testament prophets, more so than we do in our current Old Testament. But among all the prophets, he says, when I really wanted my brethren to understand the Redeemer, he read Isaiah. And that's how I feel. Isaiah has revealed Jesus to me like no other prophet. So given that commentary from the Savior and from Nephi, I would invite you to jump right into Isaiah over the next few weeks of Come Follow Me and try to get more out of it. Try to love it. In that spirit, let me briefly give a few suggestions on how we can get more out of Isaiah. No one understood Isaiah better than Nephi. Therefore, we're going to look for little hints that Nephi gives us as to how to understand him better. In 2 Nephi chapter 25, right after Nephi's quoted 13 straight chapters of Isaiah, he says that his people found Isaiah to be hard because they knew not concerning the way the Jews prophesied. It was almost as if it was a different language. It's a language of symbolism. And I think it would apply to a lot of the Latter-day Saints that we find Isaiah hard to understand because we know not concerning the way the Jews prophesied. So looking at Nephi's commentary before he quotes Isaiah and after he quotes Isaiah, I think we can pick up some tips on how to get more out of Isaiah. Let me give you one. Turn with me to 2 Nephi chapter 11 in the Book of Mormon. Nephi is about to quote the largest insertion of Isaiah's writings in the Book of Mormon, and he prefaces it with an interesting phrase. Now, I'm going to read a verse, and you think about what word fills in the blank. Nephi says, Now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall blank these words. What do you think the word is? Most of us say things like hear, read, study, ponder. But that's not the word that Nephi uses. I think Nephi's word is very significant. I'm reading from 2 Nephi 11, verse 8. And now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall see these words. And if you don't see the images he's trying to describe, if you don't paint them in your mind, you're going to miss something. You've got to see it. And then when you see it, The second word that Nephi uses is intriguing. You're going to find this in 1 Nephi 19, before he quotes his first insertion of Isaiah. You're going to find this in 2 Nephi chapter 6, before Jacob quotes Isaiah. And then you're going to find this in 2 Nephi 11, before he inserts that big chunk of Isaiah. Nephi is going to tell us to liken his words. You have to liken. So see it, liken it. Now, maybe before you can do that, one more suggestion. In 2 Nephi chapter 25, after he's quoted that large chunk, and he says that his people found Isaiah hard, he mentions in verse 6 that I understand Isaiah. 
He says, I, Nephi, have not taught my children after the manner of the Jews, but behold, I of myself have dwelt at Jerusalem, wherefore I know concerning the regions round about. What gave Nephi an advantage is he knew the history. He knew the background. He knew what a teal tree was. He knew what the cedars of Lebanon were. He knew about the Assyrians. He knew about the Babylonians. He knew concerning the regions round about. So the third suggestion I would give is you may need to dig a little bit. If it talks about a teal tree, go find out what's unique about a teal tree. What are the cedars of Lebanon? What are Fitches and Cumin? What happened in the destruction of Assyria? What happened in the destruction of Babylonia that Isaiah caught? So dig a little bit. So I'm going to use that word as our third word, dig. And then one more. This interesting prophecy from Nephi is found in 2 Nephi 25, verse 8. Speaking of Isaiah, he says, They are of worth unto the children of men, and he that supposeth they are not, unto them will I speak particularly and confine my words unto mine own people. For I know they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. For in that day they shall understand them. Nephi calls us out as having an advantage. We have something that other dispensations must not have had that gives us an advantage to understanding Isaiah. And I believe, my own personal opinion, is that that something is the fullness of the gospel that has been restored in our day. In other words, if you want to understand Isaiah, you have to have an understanding of the fullness of the gospel. To understand Isaiah, you've got to make connections to the Book of Mormon. You've got to make connections to the Doctrine and Covenants. You have to take the gospel as we know it and apply it to what you find in Isaiah. So those are my four suggestions that are coming from Nephi. See it. Picture it. Draw a picture of it in your mind. Liken it. How is that like me? Number three, dig a little bit and know concerning the regions round about. That's why I love podcasting with Mike, because if anyone knows concerning the regions roundabout, it's Mike. And then I take what he tells me, and I find greater application, because I can apply it, because now I understand it. And then number four, make sure you use all of the tools available to us in the latter days. Use the Joseph Smith translation. Use the Doctrine and Covenants. Use the teachings of Joseph Smith. The better you understand the plan of salvation and the purposes of God— the better you'll understand Isaiah. I like that list. I don't really have a lot to add to that other than just a thought about a healthy dose of being in awe. And what I mean by that is I'm a big fan of knowing the regions roundabout and studying them. And I want to just warn myself and everyone that once you come to a conclusion of what a verse means in Isaiah, it's good to be open and ask yourself, okay, but maybe it means something else. What I mean by that is, if you've ever read a commentary on Isaiah, and there are so many good ones, and we cite a bunch of them in the show notes, just know that just because someone writes a commentary that says, this verse means this, 
I would just suggest that we all be open to seeing it in other ways, because Jesus even said, all the things that Isaiah spake have been and shall be. So just because Isaiah says something and then it historically happened... Don't limit it to that one historical event. Yeah, just be open to to maybe we don't know everything. And I got to tell you, for me, this has been hard for me, Bryce, because I really kind of had some anxiety about doing this podcast, because I know that in 10 years when I listen to it, I'm not going to like it. And what I mean by that is, I'm going to change. In 10 years... Because I'm, I'm not going to stop reading Isaiah. Just because I do a podcast doesn't mean I know everything about Isaiah. And so in 10 years, uh, hopefully, I've changed and I've learned. Seen a whole lot more yeah. in it. I'm going to come back and I'm going to look at Isaiah and go, how did I miss that? How did I not talk about that? Oh my goodness, I taught on this chapter and I missed the most important thing. So I just want to just preface everything with that. Just know that when Jesus says we need to read it, I take him at his word. And for me, every single time I come back to the text, I learn more stuff. Okay, so with that little disclaimer, before we even go further, let's do a large overview of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is 66 chapters, and the first 39 chapters, I'm going to call this the Assyrian period, conflict and victory. The first 12 chapters that we're going to cover today are prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and then chapters 13 through 27 are Isaiah's prophecies concerning the nations. He's going to talk about a lot of the nations roundabout. We'll get into that next time. And then the third part, chapters 28 through 35, is the deliverance that is found not in Egypt, but in the Lord. And then... There's this historical bit in chapters 36 through 39 where Hezekiah stands at the wall, the Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem, and the question is, what should we do? And this is a historical story that is also told in the King's narrative, and so we'll do it here. So it's a couple times in the Bible. Okay, the second bit of Isaiah, what some people do call second Isaiah, is Isaiah 40 through 66. In this podcast, Bryce and I are not going to break down the arguments for and against second Isaiah. They're out there. I put some of this stuff in the show notes. If you're interested, you can go there. I acknowledge that in scholarship, there's this question of, okay, did Isaiah write chapters 40 through 66? I'm not going to settle that issue in this podcast. And also know that Mike and I believe wholeheartedly in the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. So take that into your consideration that some of those chapters do appear in the Book of Mormon. And so I hold firm to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So with that in mind, I I do want to talk about this second part. Chapters 40 through 66 talk about what's called the Babylonian period. Now, Isaiah wasn't alive during the Babylonian period. Remember, the Babylonian period is basically from 600 BC to about 520-ish, right in that time period, depending on who you read and how you divide up the times. The Babylonian period is when the Babylonian Empire comes, sacks Jerusalem, takes out the king, and deports the Jews to Babylon. That's called the exile. So 40 through 66 of Isaiah, those chapters talk about this. And so chapters 40 through 48 talk about the one true God as compared to the idols of the nations. Chapters 49 through 57 talk about the Lord's servant that brings salvation through his suffering. There's actually four servant songs that Bryce and I are going to break down, and these servant songs are beautiful. Abinadi is going to quote them. I love the servant songs. And then finally, chapters 58 through 66 talk about the future of the kingdom of God, Zion, and the new Jerusalem. So that's just a short overview of all 66 chapters, but also I want to do a brief overview of these 12 chapters. 
The first 12 chapters that we're going to cover today are prophecies concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and Isaiah chapter 1 is going to be called the Great Arraignment. I believe that chapter 1 was put as a preface to the whole book of Isaiah, kind of like section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Isaiah 2 talks about the mountain of the Lord that will be established in the tops of the mountains, and the idea that Zion will be cleansed and whole. Chapters 3 and 4 talk about Zion and her daughters. Chapter 3 of Isaiah is kind of a negative chapter. It's kind of an indictment against Zion. And chapter 4 is positive, and it talks about the hope that Zion will have. Chapter 5 we're going to do a lot with chapter five. It's the vineyard of the Lord. And it, to me, really does relate to the great arraignment. And that you have to see. You have to see Isaiah five. You can't just study it. You have to see it. Yeah. So after chapter five, we get to chapter six of Isaiah, which is the call of Isaiah. After his call, we have chapter seven through nine. These chapters talk about the virgin, the child, the stone, and the prince. Also in these chapters, three prophetic children are born with prophetic names that are code words that really bleed through all the narrative between Isaiah and Ahaz. I see these three children as signs or portents to help Ahaz to repent, because Ahaz really isn't going to listen to Isaiah. But these children are important in these three chapters. Chapter 10 talks about the king of Assyria and what he's to do and his great might in raising down Israel. And then the 11th chapter is the stump or the stem of Jesse. This chapter is a beautiful image of a tree. And then finally, in the 12th chapter, it's really short. It talks about the millennial day when things will be fixed. That's a brief overview of these 12 chapters. Which, by the way, were quoted by Nephi. So as you read this week, ask yourself, what did Nephi see that would cause him to just quote 13 straight chapters of Isaiah? One right after another. Why would Nephi include these verses sequentially in the Book of Mormon? Yeah. So with that in mind... Isaiah chapter 1 is going to be called the Great Arraignment, and Israel is in trouble. Now, let me remind you, he's speaking to the northern kingdom that's about to be taken captive by Assyria, and then he's also speaking to the southern kingdom, who he, I believe, prophetically knows is going to fall captive to the Babylonians. He is speaking to Israelites and Jews who are going to fail and fall into apostasy and be taken captive, and he's going to diagnose the problem. For me, the heart and soul of what's wrong with Israel— is also what needs to be right in our day. The problem with Israel is in verse 5. Isaiah says, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Those two words permeate throughout all of Scripture. What is in your head and what is in your heart? And if you don't have your head and your heart right, then it doesn't matter what else you're doing. Notice in verses 11 through 14, he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? Your hands are making sacrifices, but your heart and your head are not right. So to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I am full of burnt offerings. I think a good translation would be, I am sick and tired of the burnt offerings. I don't delight in the outward. What pleases the Lord is when our heart and our heads are centered on Him. 
He says in verse 13, bring me no more vain oblations. And I think the emphasis is on the word vain. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. So here's his plea. He says in verse 16, wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doing before mine eyes. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. And then a common theme is going to be take care of the fatherless and the widows. Now verse 18, let's fix that head and that heart. Come now, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. You don't have to just blindly accept it. Let's get it into your head. Let's get it into your heart. Let's reason together. Because if we get your heart and your head right, we can fix the sins your hands have committed, the tongue that is unworthy. In a beautiful image of the Messiah, he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice all the images there. I love the image of wool, sheep, lamb. I love the image of snow, a covering, covered in white. The atonement literally translated means a covering. In other words, if you walk into Gethsemane covered in red because of your sins, if you meet Jesus in Gethsemane, you will walk out covered in white. Jesus, I believe, walked into Gethsemane wearing white. And because of the blood that was shed in there, walked out wearing red. And we meet him there. We meet him in Gethsemane. And we reason with him, talk to him, counsel with him. Let your heart be open to him. Let your head be open to him. And we can walk out of Gethsemane covered in white because he walked out of Gethsemane covered in red. Do you see that beautiful exchange? Verse 19, if you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. I want you to ponder how often heart and head have come up in the scriptures. This earth began, this whole mortal fallen world began because Eve saw, thought about it, desired, took, and then ate. It got into her head and then into her heart. This restoration began, this whole dispensation in the restoration began because something got into Joseph's head and into his heart. He read that famous verse in James chapter 1, if any of you lack wisdom. Now listen to what Joseph said. Never did any passage of Scripture come with more power to the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. It seemed to enter with great force into every feeling of my heart. I reflected on it again and again. And I think that's what Isaiah is trying to say is your head and your heart are not right. 
I think of that famous verse from King Benjamin where he says, How knoweth a man the master whom he hath not served, and who is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? When God is in my head and in my heart, my hands will do the right things. My feet will take me to where I need to go. So the next time you go to a sacred place, pay attention to what happens to our head and our heart. And I think that's what I would pull out of Isaiah chapter 1, Mike. Excellent. I want to briefly talk about this as it's put together. I think we can read this chapter as a great arraignment. I believe this chapter was written after Israel was destroyed. I think the first couple verses, verses 1 through 6, could be the Lord's charge of sin and sickness that's given. Ah, sinful nation, that's in verse 4. The whole head is sick, like Bryce talked about in verse 5, full of bruises and wounds in verse 6. After the accusation, you have the judgments, that's verses 7 through 15. And this is the physical and spiritual consequences that are coming upon Israel. I really like that verse where Laman and Lemuel come to Nephi and they say, we really don't understand what's going on. Are the things that Isaiah spoke, are they physical? Like, is this really going to happen or is this a spiritual thing? And Nephi says that it's both. That's 1 Nephi 22, 1 through 3. Nephi basically says these things are figurative, but they're also literal. After the immediate judgments, there's this promise of pardon in verses 16 through 20, or at least some people read it that way. The verses about wash and make you clean, your sins be as scarlet, the verses that Bryce talked about. And then finally, you get the final sentencing in verses 21 through 31. This is where the faithful cities become as a harlot. Uh, verse 22 is an example of how you can read Isaiah. I'm going to give you a couple readings. Verse 22 could be read that your kesef has become dross. Now, kesef is a word that means silver, but it also is a word for money. And so think about this. If you have been totally destroyed in war, your money could become worthless. If you have maybe read history about what happened in Germany, how the money was literally worthless, the currency became completely devalued because of turmoil, that could be one way to read verse 22. Another way to read verse 22 is these things can represent people. So metals in Isaiah, like the gold and the silver, could represent the rulers. Metals could represent people. Trees could represent people. And animals, when Isaiah talks about clean animals, they could represent people. And Isaiah does this a lot. He does this with trees. He does this with animals. He does this with parts of the body. So what if verse 22 is, thy silver has become dross, meaning your rulers have become corrupt. They're worthless. And we kind of see this in the next verse. The princes are rebellious and they love bribes. Well, what kind of society do you have if everybody who's in charge is corrupt? And the issue, and we see this a lot in the Old Testament, is that there's no mishpat or fairness. They don't judge the fatherless and the widow. That's verse 23. Notice verse 17. Learn to do well seek judgment. In other words, seek mishpat or fairness. That is the core value of everything here. If we have a society where there's no judgment or fairness, then nothing's going to work. Another theme that you're going to see that pops up here in the first chapter that's going to be repeated throughout Isaiah is the idea of the sardid. The term that's going to be used in the King James Bible is a remnant, and that denotes a survivor. So look in verse 9. 
except the Lord of hosts, had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. The remnant is important. There's this small portion of Israel and Judah that's going to remain, and that's the hope. That's the light that Isaiah sees at the end of the tunnel. I remember, Bryce, you talked about this before at the end of the Book of Mormon when everything goes wrong. Moroni stands and says, but there's hope. This idea that a remnant shall return. But this is really difficult, and this is verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. You see, anciently, people would build these little lodges or places where the workers could work, and they'd clean the land. And after they had harvested and cleaned it, they would move on to the next parcel. And so Isaiah is saying that the land of Zion, the daughter of Zion, the land of Israel, is as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers, meaning it's this little teeny lodge and it's devoid of people. And there's no fertility. All the crops have been taken. This verse probably refers to the devastation that was put upon Israel and Judah by the Assyrian invading forces in 701 B.C., One of these cities was this city called Lachish. It was Judah's largest town outside of Jerusalem. And we have reliefs that exist which portray in vivid detail the Assyrian destruction of this city. Other parts of the relief depict Assyrian archers and stone throwers on the attack, Judean soldiers being impaled all around Lachish, and later scenes of people being led from the defeated city into exile. And according to archaeological surveys, the Assyrians decimated virtually all of the countryside outside of Jerusalem. That's from David Carr's book called Holy Resilience, The Bible's Traumatic Origins. That is so important. We need to understand that when the Assyrian army comes in at the end of the 8th century BC, they literally destroy everything. And the only thing left is going to be Jerusalem. The walls of Jerusalem and God save the the city, but everything outside of it is totally destroyed. And that's why I see Isaiah 1 as the introduction to Isaiah, but I believe it was written later, after the land was destroyed. But it could have been written before. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's clearly describing the whole country being made desolate. That's verse 7, and that's also the end of verse 8. That's kind of the big picture of chapter one. It's not the happiest chapter, but let me just say this. Isaiah will do this a lot. He'll throw these images out of destruction, but then he'll follow it up with hope. And we see this a lot in Isaiah. It's not all doom and gloom. There'll be a chapter where he says these things are happening and they're negative, but then he follows it with an expectation of light. There's hope that a remnant shall return. Now that idea of a remnant is so significant to Latter-day Saints. We believe that every prophet of every dispensation saw our day and knew who we were, and there was always that hope that Israel is not going to die. Even those prophets who saw Israel dying in their day, Israel was not going to die, and they knew it. Let me point out a couple interesting prophecies. Isaiah probably had the writings of Zenos perhaps one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. In Jacob chapter 5, that beautiful chapter about Zenos's allegory of the tame and the wild olive tree, starting in verse 29, the apostasy begins. It says, after a long time passed away, verse 32, none of the fruit was good. So here is the apostasy period. But notice what the servant says to the master in verse 34. Because thou didst graft in the branches of the wild olive tree, 
they have nourished the roots that they are alive, and they have not perished. Wherefore thou beholdest that they are yet good. Verse 36, I know that the roots are good, and for mine own purpose I have preserved them. Yes, Israel is going to fall into a worldwide apostasy, but the roots are alive, which means they can come back. We are their message of hope. We are the reason that so many of these Old Testament prophets had hope because Israel would come back. Even in the book of Revelation, where the woman with the child goes into the wilderness, that's the image of her going into apostasy, where she is nourished, that a remnant is going to survive and Israel will be victorious. So find yourself in these writings of Isaiah. Now, speaking of a prophecy of the latter days and the victory, let's get to chapter 2, and Isaiah is going to come out and say, in the last days, and then the prophecy of the mountain being in the tops of the mountains. Yeah. Isaiah, he sees in verse 2 that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Sometimes when Isaiah speaks of mountains, he's referring to kingdoms. Sometimes when he speaks of a mountain, he's referring to a temple. So there's different ways to read it, but one way to read verse 2 is that the mountain of the Lord's house or the temple will be established in the tops of the kingdoms. That's one way to read it. But Another way to read it, verse 2, is that Isaiah sees a day when the temple will be built in Jerusalem and all nations will flow to Zion because they'll see who God is. This could be a millennial prophecy. There's lots of ways to read verse 2, but look at verse 3. Many people shall go up and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. There's this idea, I believe, as a millennial hope that one day the sons of Adam and Eve will stop killing each other and they will issue in all the promises of the Old Testament, the idea of fertility in the land and peace and walking in the light of the Lord and all of these things. But the problem that Isaiah sees is verse 8, that the land is full of idols. Over and over again, he talks about this idea. And then he talks about the cedars of Lebanon that are lifted up. Isaiah sees, if you go to the end of Isaiah 2, verses 7 to the end, that the people that live in the land are pleasing themselves with idols. And it talks about there's no end to their chariots and their horses. And what are these idols going to do? Verse 18, they're going to be utterly abolished, and they will go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth. And notice the creatures that are associated with these idols in verse 20. In that day shall a man cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each one for himself to worship, to the moles and the bats. These are chaos images. They're also unclean animals. And so these things that they think are so important are going to be cast aside. And so Isaiah does this a lot. He inverts symbols a lot of times. So the idols that everybody wants are one day going to be considered 
worthless. That's one way to read the end of Isaiah 2. Now, going back to chapter 1, where the Lord lays out his accusation against Israel and Judah and says, in your head and in your heart, there is no soundness. Now he's telling us, what does he want to find in our head and in our heart? I would encourage you to circle two contrasting statements and ask yourself, which one of these is in your head and in your heart? In chapter 2, when we come up to Zion, so he's going to build his temple, he's going to build his house, and we're going to say to each other, come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. I would circle that phrase, his ways. And then at the end of that verse, there's an implied his word. Walk in his paths and follow his word. Now, you can contrast that in verse 8, and I would highlight the next phrase, which is, their own hands. They are full of idols, the worship of the work of their own hands. And I think that's the struggle. Is it his way in your heart or your way in your heart? Because if you worship the work of your own hands— then you think about and desire in your heart things that glorify you. If you live his way and walk in his paths, if that's what's in your head and in your heart, that will lead you to his reward. Now, go to section one of the Doctrine and Covenants. Notice how the Doctrine and Covenants begins with a preface that says, Starting in verse 12, prepare ye for the Lord is nigh, his sword is bathed, and he's going to destroy the world. Now, why is he going to destroy the world? Verse 15, for they have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way. And after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world. Boy, that's just right out of Isaiah chapter 2. And I love chapter 2 because we are going to go up to Zion and we are going to learn his ways and we are going to walk in his paths. Yes, exactly. And Isaiah 3 and 4 are going to talk about Zion and her daughters. And in the very first verse of chapter 3, the Lord is going to take away the stay and the staff. Now, that could represent a lot of things. This could be code for lacking the true priesthood in Isaiah's day at the temple. This could also be read as Isaiah's first calling narrative, but notice what it says. Behold, the Lord of hosts doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. The leadership is described as inadequate. Look in verse 2. The mighty man and the man of war, the, the judge, the prophet, the prudent and the ancient, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them and the people shall be oppressed, everyone by his neighbor. I love in verse 12, Mike, that it says, O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy path. Your leaders are not only leading you astray, but they are destroying your path ahead of you. Yeah. I mean, there's there could be some code here. I, I'm just saying that there could be some code in the sense of 
they have no bread or water. Now, remember that part of the temple ceremony that they had anciently, and we, ha- we do it today in church during the sacrament, is they are, they're fed. We're fed at the sacrament with the bread and the water, or the bread and the wine anciently in early Christianity. They're fed with this bread and water, and they don't have it, and the people are oppressed. And then we have this issue with clothing, and it's kind of in code. Look in verse 6. When a man will take hold of his brother of the house of his father, and he will say, Thou hast clothing, be our ruler, let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day he will swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of this people. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. I see in one sense that this could be read as they've changed the ordinances of the temple. They don't have bread and clothing. They don't have food and water. Now, it could also be just a simple plain reading as, no, they've been wrecked. Why have they been wrecked? Verse 9, their sin is as Sodom, woe unto their soul. Woe unto the wicked, verse 11. And then we have verse 12, where it talks about women ruling over them. And so a lot of commentators say things like, well, the, the reason why women are ruling over them is because the men have been killed in war. That could be one reading of this. Now, there's other ways to read this. There's three missing objects in this chapter. There's the staff, the clothing, and the bread. They're all symbols of the same thing, which is that Yahweh the Lord, who is their healer, is missing. And so knowing this, and knowing there's this charge where they come to this individual and they say, hey, we want you to be our ruler, one possible way to read this is that the people of the land have cast out the righteous leaders or the true manner of worship in the temple, and they've filled the office with their own man who isn't worthy, and his appointment doesn't result in the return of the Lord. A classic example of this, I think, from the Book of Mormon that may help us is this man who kind of changes the way they do things, at least religiously, in the Book of Mormon. And this man is King Noah. They're still doing some of the trappings of religion, but they're doing it wrong. And so Abinadi comes kind of in the robes of Isaiah, and Abinadi comes and says, you guys are doing this wrong. And what's fascinating to me is, and we're going to see this in chapter 7 through 9, the word that's going to be used in the Hebrew, it's translated as virgin in the English, but the word is ha'alma. And that word alma means like, it's translated as virgin, but it literally means young woman, but it's also this prophetic figure in the text of Isaiah. And so who do we have in the story in the Book of Mormon when Abinadi comes like Isaiah and says, hey, you guys have replaced truth for this false clothing, this false staff, and this false bread? When Abinadi comes and says that, they kill him, and they replace him with their own guy, which is Noah. But someone stands up, Alma, and says, no, you're doing this wrong. And he goes into the wilderness, and he teaches the people, and they come into Christ, and they have visions. And so this image of the virgin and the tree are all connected. We see this in in Alma 32, right? This tree imagery, faith into a, a seed, and the seed grows up into a tree. And Bryce and I talked about it earlier when we did Proverbs. The tree is wisdom. Wisdom is a tree. It's a tree of life. And so this image of the virgin and the tree are all connected. And one of the things we can see here, it's kind of on a deeper level, like a like more of a temple reading, is that they have cast out the staff, the clothing, the bread. These are all three temple images which typify Christ, and they've tried to replace it. Isaiah says in Isaiah 3, verse 9, hey, this is as a Sodom. You guys are bragging about this stuff. You guys have changed it, and 
you're not even shy about it. You're not even um, sad about it. Now, notice verse 14, the Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for ye have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. So they have corrupt leaders. Verse 15, they grind the faces of the poor. And then you get to verses 16 to the end of the chapter, and it's describing all these articles of apparel that the women wear. So all these verses, if you've ever read them and you're like, what is going on with these crisping pins and round tires like the moon and the nose rings and the jewels? I, I remember reading this going, what is going on? Well, there's a lot of different interpretations of Isaiah 3. Robert Alter sees this as a description of the disparity between the rich and the poor. And we give you his take in the show notes. Victor Ludlow, who's an LDS commentator, he sees these passages as a description of the immodesty of the daughters of Zion contrasted with the slavery they're soon going to face. And we put his commentary in the show notes. Excellent stuff. Margaret Barker sees this as a corruption of the wisdom in the Enoch tradition. And we put her comments in the show notes. And then finally, David Butler sees these verses as a condemnation of the priestesses in the Jerusalem temple. Now, I happen to like this. This is what David Butler says. We read an indictment of the daughters of Zion in Isaiah 3, 16 through 24. This is out of place unless the women being chastised are also leaders, people who are as important as the princes and priests. You see, we just got done blasting the princes and priests of Israel. They might be women of wealthy or ruling families, but I think it's more likely that they're priestesses. That would explain why in this chapter there are multiple daughters and they're chastised as sinners, but in other passages, the daughter of Zion seems to be a single person with a special connection to the temple. For instance, in Isaiah 1.8, where the daughter of Zion is the temple, and Isaiah 16.1, in which the mount belongs to her, that would also make sense of the elaborate description of the women's clothing, which is then a description or a parody of the ritual clothing of the priestesses. If the ancient order of the Jerusalem temple to which Isaiah is attached knows a class of priestesses who wear sacred vestments like the priests in order to become the virgin, this diatribe against the daughters of Zion who spangle themselves with vain ornamentation and will be blasted with ugliness makes perfect sense. In the temple apostasy, the sacred women have abandoned their posts in favor of frivolity. I think that is a great take. In other words, on one level, yes, they're going to go into slavery. But on another level, and I think this is in code, I think what's going on is Isaiah is blasting them for changing the, the ordinances of the temple, at least as he understood it, and the elders of Israel, the people in charge, have changed their religion, and he blasts both the men and the women. Now, I see hints of this in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon when Nephi talks about this bad guy called Laban, which is a flipped pun on the word fool. And Laban is this guy that hangs out with the elders of the Jews, and Laban is doing some of the stuff that Isaiah is talking about. And Lehi stands in the Isaiah tradition where he's a visionary man and he's seeing God, and he has this vision, as does Nephi, of the tree and coming to the tree and partaking of all the things that God has for us in that great visionary experience in 1 Nephi 8 and 11. That's right. Now, here's my take on chapters 3, 4, and 5 as they build up. I really believe these chapters are crescendoing. They're building up. Chapter 1, he says, your head and your heart aren't right. And then in chapter 2, he introduces the idea that what's in your head can either be God's way, God's path, 
or your own way and your own path. Now, chapter three, he's basically saying, let me show you the end of the your own way path. If you choose to live your life your way, if that's what's in your heart, in chapter three, he says the end result of living your own way is going to be a lack of bread, no food, no nourishment, because you can't lastingly nourish yourself. Secondly, there's going to be no vision, no leadership, no one to lead you because you've chosen not to follow them. And then the third one is there's going to be no covering. He basically comes out and says, you have become like a bald woman, uncovered. And I think he's making clear reference to that image of atonement. The atonement does not cover you. Now, contrast that with chapter 4 that says, if you choose to live my way, if God's way is in your heart and in your head, verse 2, you'll be beautiful. You'll have fruit. He mentions the cloud by day and the spoke by night. In other words, you'll be led. You'll be prospered. And I think he's really contrasting the two paths you can choose. In chapter 4, he basically makes three places temples. In verse 5, he says, the Lord shall create upon every dwelling place. That's my home. Every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon all her assemblies. There's my ward house. There's the chapel. And now my home and the chapel are going to have a cloud of smoke by day and a flame of fire by night. Now, that's a clear reference to the way the Lord led them in the desert. There was a cloud of smoke over the temple, and when it moved, they knew they needed to move. And there was a fire over the temple by night. When it moved, they know they needed to move. You will be led. Your home will be a sacred place, and your family will be guided from on high. And then verse 6, there shall be a tabernacle. There's the temple. So my home, my chapel, and my temple. There shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge. In other words, I'll be covered. I'll be covered from harm, from danger. So if you choose to live God's way, if what's in your heart and in your head are the things of God and the glory of your heavenly Father, you will find yourself covered by his protective shield. You will be filled with fruit, and you will be led and guided. I really like four as a positive foil to the end of three. And if you look at the end of three, it says that she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. And that ends there. And then the fifth chapter opens with an actual woman speaking. It doesn't say it in the English, but it is. It's right there in the Hebrew. This woman is lamenting. So four is this great foil. We go from negative to positive in four, which I love your message there, Bryce. And then in the fifth chapter, the woman speaks again. Notice what it says. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. This is literally feminine. And so it's a woman singing this song. And I believe that, that it's this woman that we just got out of chapter three. This woman is singing the song of a vineyard, but notice it's the song of my beloved touching his vineyard, and this vineyard is Israel, and it's a beautiful image. Yeah. The woman in chapter three who's singing a lament, saying, this is what God would have done had I followed his path. I think that's the setting here. 
Now, what she's saying is, I'm going to pay tribute to what God does in our life. And I think this is the beauty of Isaiah. I'm going to take one verse, and you can just spend a lifetime in this one verse. What will God do if you choose to follow him? If you follow his path, what will God do? Verse 2 has a list of five things that your heavenly Father is going to do in your life. This is what the Lord of the vineyard does to all of us. Number one, he will fence it. He will put a shield around you. He will keep you safe. Commandments are part of that fence to keep you safe. The covenants are part of that fence. God will tell you how to be safe. Number two, he will remove all of the stones. He will remove anything that will stunt your growth or get in your way. I love how Jesus kind of picks that up and says, look, a loving father who has a son who's hungry and asks for bread, would he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent? And the idea is, no, he would never give a son a stone to eat because stones aren't good for you. I don't get any water or nutrients out of a stone. It blocks my growth. It gets in my way. And the promise of the Lord is, I will remove the stones. You won't have any useless experiences. There won't be anything that happens in your life that is simply painful and hurtful for no end purpose. If you choose to follow him, he will remove the stones. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to remove pain, because wait till you get to the fifth item. But what he will remove are the useless experiences that aren't for my good, that simply get in my way. He will remove the stones. And then number three, what else has the Lord done in my life? And I know he's done it in your life. He will plant the choicest vine. Tell me he hasn't surrounded you with some of the most wonderful spirits he had in premortal life. He has blessed you abundantly with wonderful people, the choicest vines. Number four in verse two, he will build a tower. Now, the reason you put a tower in a vineyard is to watch for the enemy. I will warn you of enemies to come. I will give you a prophet that will tell you when danger is around the corner. I will always warn you of danger. That's what he promises to do. And there's one more item on the list. Because he loves us and wants us to become what, we, what he knows will make us happy, number five in verse two, he made a wine press. Now, if I'm in that vineyard, if I am a grape growing on that vine and there's a fence around me, and there's no stones to block my growth, and I'm surrounded by the most wonderful other grapes, and there's a tower that warns me when there's danger, I think it's understandable if I'm not excited about the wine press. Because if I'm a grape, I know what's going to happen in that wine press. I'm going to be crushed. But I'm going to be shaped and molded I don't think the Lord of the vineyard is producing raisins. He's producing the finest wine. And the only way I can be that is if I go through that wine press. But I can trust him 
that there are no stones. That wine press is not a stone. If I choose to follow God, I can trust that the painful experiences of my life are shaping me into something beautiful and glorious and worthy. That wine is going to be served at the king's table. It's going to be the best of the wines, and it has to go through a wine press. That's what we get when we sign up for God. That's what we get if we follow him. We get a fence. We get a shield. We get protection and safety, and enemies are kept at bay. We get the removal of the stones. We are planted surrounded by the most wonderful people. We get warning when danger comes. There's a prophet in a tower. But we also have to deal with this winepress and understand that I am becoming something great. And there will be painful moments as I go through that winepress, but that he will be with me. I love what the Lord said to Joseph Smith, that all these things shall give the experience and shall be for thy good. Even Liberty Jail was a winepress experience. And so are the challenges that you face as you follow Christ. The beauty is he's walking with you through the winepress. You don't have to do it alone because he went alone through the winepress. Now, that's a beautiful description of what God is offering to do in your life. But what if I'm a grape that looks at the fence and doesn't see that it's keeping danger out? What if my attitude is that that fence is keeping me in? What if I begin to question the motives of the Lord of the vineyard and I began to think this fence is restricting me? That's exactly what Korohor was trying to say, that you're bound down under a foolish hope. You're being kept inside a box. You're not free. And if I begin to think that the fence is a way to keep me in, when I begin to resent the Lord's fence, and I don't want to go to the wine press, and I don't care about the man on the tower warning me of danger, the moment I say, I don't want to follow the Lord because he loves me, guess what he's going to do? Now, this woman that's lamenting is speaking from personal experience, and she's saying, if you don't want him to do these things, if you don't value the fence or the tower, then here's what he's going to do. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray, they betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard that I've not done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. So let me tell you what I'm going to do. If you don't like my fence, I will tear it down. If you don't like my tower, if you don't like my prophet, if you don't like what my prophet is telling you about the enemy that's coming, I will take him away, and I will leave you to yourself, because that's exactly what you wanted. If the history of Israel teaches us one truth, it's that when you want to be like the world, that's exactly what he lets you become, and you will be left on your own. Now, this is what's going to happen. Verse 5, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. I will do exactly what you asked me to do. But he says, as soon as I tear away the hedge, you will be eaten up. 
as soon as I break down the wall, you will be trodden down. I will lay lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or digged. If you don't like me, then there's going to be stones in your life, and you're going to be hungry. And he just kind of goes down that same list and says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. So you'll get what he described in chapter 3. You'll get blind leaders leading you and destroying you. Verse 13, he says, My people are gone into captivity because they didn't heed the warning of the prophet who warned them about the captivity. Do you see how he's numbering these same things? If you don't want the fence, I'll take it away and you'll be trodden down. If you don't like the stones, then I'll let you have them. And then you'll have briars and thorns and noxious weeds in your life. If you don't like the tower and the advice you're getting from my prophet, I'll take it away. But you'll go into captivity. You'll have no knowledge. Your honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure to receive you. Now, this message comes loud and clear through the Book of Mormon, where King Benjamin in the very end says, you've got to remember two things, the greatness of God and your own nothingness. And if you remember that, everything in your life will work out. It's the same message. So I just love the crescendo of these chapters. Now, the pleading of the Lord is, Fill your head and your heart with God's way, God's path, God's glory, and become something great and glorious. I just love this crescendo, Mike. That's good. He does. He gives them six woes. And then the end of Isaiah 5, verses 26 through 30, can be read historically as the rise of the Assyrians, as they're coming and as they're wrecking everyone. I, I know that other commentators have talked about this, having multiple fulfillment, meaning that God is raising up an enzyme, and that standard is going to be used as a rallying cry to spread the gospel. I know it's read that way. I, I like to read it historically, but I know there's lots of ways to read the end of Isaiah 5. So after chapter 5, we get to chapter 6 of Isaiah. Most people see Isaiah 6 as, hey, this is the call. We read that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. This is right around 740 BC. And where's Isaiah? We think he's standing at the veil before the Holy of Holies. Above it, above the Lord, or above the throne, stood the seraphims, seraphim in the Hebrew, ims, that's a rough translation. This just means multiple seraphs. Um, and then they have these wings, and I think that's where in Christian tradition we get this idea that angels have wings, because there are six of them in verse 2. We typically don't paint angels with six wings, but in here we have six of them. This could represent the power of movement that the seraphim have. And then we have the superlative in verse 3. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is a superlative, talking about that the Lord is the holiest. He's going to be called in Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel. That phrase Nephi is going to use to describe the Lord a lot, because that's how Nephi sees him. I also believe that verse 3 is talking about the purpose of the earth. The purpose of the earth could be hinted at in verse 3 as a place where the Lord's glory can be established. I think that section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants talks about this. If you read verses like 10 through 20 of section 88, seems to indicate that the purpose of the earth is for the Lord's glory to be established. 
The post of the door moved, and the voice of him that cried in the house was filled with smoke. This could be the altar of incense before the veil. This could be the glory of the Lord, as Isaiah sees it. Verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. That's a rough translation. I think probably a better translation is that I am struck dumb. I think that Isaiah is just, he doesn't have words because he's seeing God. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we have essentially here an opening of the mouth ceremony. We have this image of a live coal in verse 6 being brought to be put on Isaiah's mouth. Now, some people read this literally. Some people see this symbolically. I'm not going to settle it. But what we have here is Isaiah's sin is purged. That's what we read in verse 7, with this live coal that's taken from the altar of incense. In other words, it's like his sins are cauterized, as it were. It's a beautiful symbol. And then we read that he has heard, in verse 8, the voice of the Lord. Now notice the end of verse 5. I have seen the king, verse 5, but verse 8 says, I have heard the voice. And that is really a, a really good indication of a prophet. He's seeing the Lord both with his eyes, but he's also hearing the voice of the Lord. And then we have this plural here in verse 8. The voice of the Lord said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. Who will go for us is counsel language. I see verse 8 as Isaiah being brought into the divine counsel. This is similar to what Amos says, where he says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The word secret is sod, or the counsel, the divine counsel. This is what we see in the council vision at the very beginning of the book of Nephi, when Lehi is brought into the council and he sees multiple divine beings. And there's other places, and we've talked about some of these before in the podcast, but essentially this is a council vision that he has. And the council says, who is going to go for us? Now, this is also reminiscent of the grand council in heaven before the world was, when, when the Father said, who will go for us? And the Son of Man, the Savior, said, here am I, send me. So Isaiah is a type of Christ. But Isaiah is also a type of you and I. When we decide and say, here am I, send me, I will go do this. And so what's his commission? Verse 9 and 10. And this has always been... For me, one of those verses where I, for years, read this and said, what is this saying? And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, and understand not, but see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and be converted, and be healed." For years I read that, and, and I'm not saying I have all the right answers, but I, for years I read that and thought, what, what, what does this even mean? I think one way to read this, first of all, is his commission, and it's one word. It's go. That's verse 9. I love that in English. That's a complete sentence. Go. There it is. That's his commission. And then he's to tell this people. Notice the Lord's not calling them my people. If the Lord was saying, my people, they were keeping the covenant, but we just read in the previous chapter, they're not. So this people, they're outside of the covenant, and then he's to teach them. I think one of the things we can take with verse 9 and 10 is that he's teaching them to condemn them. That's a tough thing to say, but we see this in the Book of Mormon in the 14th chapter of Alma. When the people of Ammonihah are being burned by the wicked people... And then Amulek says, you know what, should we stop this? 
Alma says in verse 11, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth my hand, for the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And then later in the verse he says, That the judgments which he shall exercise upon them, the wicked, in his wrath may be just. It seems to indicate that part of Isaiah's commission is to teach the people, and they're not going to get it, but he has to do the call. He has to proclaim it, even though they're going to reject it. And if they didn't reject it, that's what would have happened. Exactly. I think another way to read this, and to me, this is powerful. It helps me understand Isaiah, and it gives me hope, and it gives me patience. So bear with me, but this is the Mike Tate Midrash of 9 and 10. What if a big part of this is the commission to speak in code? What if God says to Isaiah, I want you to prophesy in code. You're going to speak in such a way that those that have eyes and ears to see and to hear are going to get it, but other people aren't going to get it. We read a similar thing in the Gospels in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17, where the Savior says essentially that. He says basically, hey, I'm going to speak in such a way that those that have eyes to see are going to get it, and those that don't, won't. And part of it is to save them, to save them from being accountable. I think that's another way to read verse 9 and 10. For me, Isaiah is in code. And I think that's another reason why the Lord said we've got to study it. And I'm going to say this, I think a big part of it is because, believe it or not, the Book of Mormon is plain, but I also think the Book of Mormon's in code. It invites us to ponder and to see. And so with that in mind, verse 11, Isaiah says, well, how long am I going to do this? And the Lord basically says, well, to the land's completely destroyed. <laughs> and, and that does happen. I mean, the Assyrians do come in and wipe out pretty much everyone. And then verse 13 says, but yet, even though the land's going to be destroyed, in it, there's this tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a tail tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. One of the ways that this can be read is that a small percentage, the Lord's tithe, will return, and the Lord's covenant people will come back to the Lord, like a tree that's been cut down, but that tree can grow again. Even though there's a stump there, a tree can grow again. We're going to see that in Isaiah 11. Now, for me, Isaiah's call is a beautiful illustration of needing to see. You've got to see this. The power of this comes when you see it. So Isaiah sees the Lord. Now, wouldn't you feel a little inadequate and unworthy if you saw the Lord? And I think that's exactly what Isaiah is feeling. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. And then he picks a part of his body to symbolize his unworthiness. Appropriately, it's his lips, because I think that represents all the thing that comes out of us. So I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm seeing the Lord, and yet I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, see this. There's an angel there who has tongs. And he grabs a coal. Now, why does he need tongs? Because the coal is hot. So why would the coal be hot? This is an altar, right? He's taking a coal from the altar. So why would a coal on an altar be hot? Because they've just offered a sacrifice. So what sacrifice is this? Is this just some random lamb? Or is it the lamb? Are we back in pre-mortal life? And he just said, I will be the Redeemer. Now, when did the atonement become effective? 
I don't believe the atonement became effective when Jesus went into Gethsemane and paid the price. I believe the atonement became effective the moment in premortal life he volunteered to be the Messiah. That is the moment that symbolically he laid on that altar and he was sacrificed. And that sacrifice is hot. It just happened. And an angel takes a piece of that sacrifice. So do you see symbolically what this angel has? He is holding with his tongs a piece of the atonement, the sacrifice of the lamb. And he brings it to Isaiah. Now, where's he going to put it, right? He's going to put it on the object that Isaiah used to represent his unworthiness. He's going to touch his lips. And as soon as he does, what does the angel say? You're clean. You're purged. You're worthy because the atonement has touched you. Now, do you see that? That's just such a beautiful image you've got to see that whatever Jesus touches, whatever the atonement touches is cleansed and made perfect. Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken from thee. That's what Jesus does. And I love that. Now, if we let the atonement touch us, turning verse 10 into the positive, this becomes the very purpose of the gospel, the very purpose of the Savior. If you will follow the Savior, your ears will hear, your eyes will see, your heart will understand, you will be converted, and you will be healed. I don't think there is a better description of the purpose of God's work here on earth. The purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the purpose of missionary work, the purpose of my Sunday school class, the purpose of my calling, the purpose of parenthood. Here it is in one verse. It is to help people hear with their ears, see with their eyes, understand with their hearts, be converted and be healed. I know it's kind of given in a negative because those people were going to reject him, but when you turn verse 10 into the positive, it becomes the very heart and soul of everything that the gospel has anything to do with. Go, help people see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, so that they're converted and he can heal them. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 6. Let's jump into 7. Here's the deal. In 7 through 9, a lot of this stuff is couched in political intrigue, and there's a lot of history. And I really like what one commentator said. He said, may I suggest that you don't get bogged down in the foreign policy stuff? And I think that's important. We don't want to get bogged down in the foreign policy stuff, but we do need to know what's going on. So I'm going to be brief, and the show notes get really extensive. So you can go check those out if you want. But if you look in verse 1 of chapter 7, we see that there's the king of Syria and the king of Israel are going to wage war against Jerusalem. The reason why they're going to wage war against Jerusalem is they want to take Ahaz out. They want to take him out and put a puppet king in his place because Assyria is rising up in power, and the two northern kingdoms, Israel and Syria, want to have Judah on their side to unite so that they can defend themselves against Assyria, but Ahaz isn't having any of it. And so they basically say, well, we're just going to take you out then. And so... 
the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, go talk to him. That's verse 3. And so if you go to verse 3, it says, go talk to him and go to, quote, the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Translation, go meet him at the laundry plaza down there by the pool of Siloam, down there at the southern end of the city. You're going to go talk to him, and you're going to give him the prophecy to not stress out. Notice he's going to go with his son. Now, there's three children that are going to be mentioned in these passages. The first one is verse 3. It's Shir Jasib. Now, it says in the footnote what his name means. It means a remnant shall return. And here's my take on this. I think that Ahaz doesn't want Isaiah prophesying. Ahaz is a bad guy. And so what is Isaiah doing? I believe he's a classic underground prophet. He's naming children prophetic names to teach the gospel, even though he's not allowed to preach. That's just kind of how I read this. And so he goes with Shir Jashub as a witness to the laundry plaza and says, don't worry about it. Verse 4, take heed and be quiet. Don't fear these guys. They're not going to get you. In fact, these two nations are going to be broken that they're not a people. That's verse 8. If you will not believe, verse 9, surely you shall not be established. So after he says this, he says, go ahead and ask for a sign. And Ahaz gets kind of like a little bit pious with his hypocrisy. In verse 12, he's like, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. And then this is what Isaiah says. Hear ye now, O house of David. Now that's helping him remember the covenant, that remember he is a member of the house of David. Remember who you are, he says. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, Ha'elma, a virgin in the English, but literally in the Hebrew, it's the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the second son. Emmanuel literally means God with us. Now, there's a lot of ink spilled on this. We're not going to settle in this podcast. Go to the show notes. You can check it out or just do your own Google search. There's a big battle over what's going on in verse 14. My take is I like Ha'alma, but that's the maiden. But then the Greek translators take the Hebrew and they change it and they translate it to Parthenos. And they also put the definite article in front of it. We translate this for you in the show notes. It's all in there. But that word Parthenos, if you've ever heard of the Parthenon, that's where that comes from. Parthenos means virgin. So when Matthew writes his gospel, he talks about Mary, who is the virgin to conceive the Messiah, Emmanuel, who is God with us. Many Christians, the early Christians, many of them looked to Isaiah as a visionary. They said that he expounded the mysteries. Jerome, who gave us the Vulgate, basically, said that Isaiah was one of them. He was a visionary, and he saw Jesus. That's how I see verse 14. But we got to stop and do a timeout on this and say, that would probably not have a big meaning to Ahaz. First of all, remember, Ahaz is wicked. So if you're going to give Ahaz a sign that these two kingdoms that are going to come wreck you aren't going to wreck you, and your sign is something that's 700 years in the future, it's kind of like me in the ancient world talking about something that's on the fifth ring of Saturn. Like, nobody knows what I'm talking about. It would make no sense in that historical context. And so what we think's going on is that Isaiah is prophesying, and it's it's coded, it's multivalent, but that a Alma, or a young maiden, will bear a child... And before he's old enough to know good from evil, raw from tov, in verse 15, the land that is coming at you, verse 16, is going to be forsaken of both their kings. Now, who is this child? There's a lot of ink spilled on that. I'm going to say that it could be Hezekiah. 
Now, I know that there are scholars that disagree, and we put their stuff in the show notes if you want to read it. John Oswald says, no, Mike, you're wrong. It's not Hezekiah, so you can read it and decide for yourself. But whatever it is, there's a child that's going to be born, and before he's old enough to be accountable, Syria and Israel are going to be broken. And that actually happened. It says in verse 8 that it's within three score and five years, 60 and five years. It's actually within like four or five years. There are a lot of scholars that say that's like a scribal error. That was probably when Isaiah is talking to him, he says, listen, in five or six years, this is going to happen. I kind of like that. I think that could be a scrabble error. It doesn't matter. But the idea is that he tells Ahaz, don't worry. Here's your sign. And notice what he's going to eat. This child, verse 15, is going to eat butter and honey. Now, there's a lot going on there, but that could be indicative of the food at the tree in the Holy of Holies, that this is a holy individual, a servant, and this could be Jesus. Another interpretation is that butter and honey were the food of the nomads, the people that lived a nomadic lifestyle. In other words, Israel is going to be wrecked, and some of us, maybe even this child, will eat butter and honey for a period of time, but we will be restored. There's lots of ways to read verse 15. And so he tells him, don't worry in verse 16, everything's going to be okay. So then he talks about the Assyrian king. Go to verse 20. He's called a razor. Remember, the Assyrian king is this bad guy. He's this bad tyrant. He's going to be called a lot of things. He's going to be called a staff. He's going to be called an axe. In this verse, verse 20, he's called a razor. And what's he going to do? He's going to come from beyond the river and In verse 20, it says, In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired. So the king of Assyria is a razor, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. The head is the leadership of the land of Israel. And it shall consume the beard. Now, that word for beard is zakan, and it can be read a couple different ways. The word is also can be read, depending on how you vowel point it, as the elders. So when it talks about consuming the beard, it could mean it's multivalent. They're going to shave the beard. The king of Assyria shaved your bald, shaved your beard. One of the reasons why they did this was to humiliate these men. But another reason why they did it is so they couldn't run away. If my head and beard are shaven and I'm a slave and I think I'm going to run away, I'm not going to get very far. So I think that's a good reading. But another thing in verse 20 that's happening is essentially the elders, and that's Zakan, the elders are going to be consumed or taken out. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. It shall come to pass for the abundance of milk... He shall eat butter, for butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. That is indicative of the land being devastated. Assyria is going to wreck everyone, and the people are going to live kind of this nomadic diet for a period of time. And then we have the repetition of briars and thorns throughout the rest of the passage. Notice what it also says at the end of verse 25. It shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Remember, animals in Isaiah could be read as metaphors for people. And so these people are going to be living in the land. Now, go to the eighth chapter. This is the third child. So we've had Sheer Jashub, a remnant shall return. We've had Emmanuel, that is, God is with us. And then we have chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take a roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And in the footnote, it actually says right there, To speed the spoil, he hasteneth the prey. And that's the third son. This is a prophetic message, and it's prophetic of a couple things. It's prophetic of the power of the king. That's going to be chapter 10. The whole 10th chapter of Isaiah is talking about the Assyrian king. But it's also prophetic of God and his power. And so notice verse 3, I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare the son. And they called the son by that name. 
Now, who is the prophetess? Some people say, well, that's Isaiah's wife. That could also be the image of this woman. Remember, there's this virgin in chapters 7, 8, and 9. And this woman could be read as the prophetess in chapter 8, verse 3. She could be this Ha'alma. This image of this woman is a powerful image throughout these chapters. So with that in mind, we have this message that the king of Assyria is, verse 8, going to reach even unto the neck, into thy land. And then it says in verse 8, he shall pass through over Judah. Now this is speaking of the king of Assyria. He, the king of Assyria, shall overflow and go over. He shall reach even to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. So this is speaking to Emmanuel. That's why a lot of scholars look at this and say, Emmanuel represents Hezekiah, and that the king of Assyria is going to come and come to your neck. So to me, this verse 8 of chapter 8 is a message to Hezekiah that the king of Assyria is going to come, and the counsel is, don't, verse 9, associate yourselves. The challenge anciently was this. If Bryce's country was going to come into my country and attack me, then what I wanted to do, and we do, we see this in Risk, if you've ever played that game, I want to go and get my friend who has his country and associate myself with him, and together we can defend ourselves against that nation. And in this passage, Isaiah says, don't do that. Verse 10, take counsel together and it shall come to naught or to nothing. Speak the word and it shall not stand, for God is with us. So essentially what Isaiah is saying is, just trust the Lord. Verse 12, say ye not a confederacy, don't join with them. And so, verse 17 says, I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from his house of Jacob, and I will look for him. That's going to be an image we're going to see over and over again, that those who wait upon the Lord are the people of the Lord. That's actually what Nephi says in 2 Nephi 6.13, that those who wait upon the Lord are his people. Now, I want to just say this. I think verse 16 can be read a couple ways. If you look in verse 16, it says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. It can also be read as the stone of testimony. It's actually the same word. The stone of testimony is the Holy of Holies. That that is that stone in the Holy of Holies. And so what is a place where the righteous are, the stone of testimony, is also verse 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to the houses of Israel, a gin and a snare. But notice in verse 14, it also says, he shall be for a sanctuary to the righteous, meaning God is a sanctuary to the righteous in verse 14, but a stone of stumbling to the wicked. And I like the reading of verse 16 that we're talking about the stone of testimony, but it can be read either way. So the gist, Mike, is there's a bad guy up north, and if you combine with Israel, which is plain naughty, You're not going to stand. The solution to your problems is to rely on God and his majesty, not to rely on man to solve this this problem. Yeah, I think that's big picture. And then in the ninth chapter, probably the most famous bit is where we read in verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There's really four names there. And essentially, who is this person? Okay, yes, it is Hezekiah, but it's also Jesus. It's multivalent. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And God is going to fix things. Things are going to be okay. 
It's also that in this clash of governments with Assyria trying to gain power, Egypt is still at play here, and does Judah join Israel against Syria? In all of this play against the nations, I love the comment from Joseph Smith where he said, The world itself presents one great theater of misery, woe, and distress of nations with perplexity. All, all speak with a voice of thunder that man is not able to govern himself, to legislate for himself, to protect himself, to promote his own good, nor the good of the world. Then he adds, it has been the design of Jehovah from the commencement of the world and is his purpose now to regulate the affairs of the world in his own time, to stand as head of the universe and to take the reins of government into his own hand. When that is done, judgment will be administered in righteousness. Anarchy and confusion will be destroyed and nation will learn war no more. Other attempts to promote universal peace and happiness in the human family have proven abortive. Every effort has failed. Every plan and design has fallen to the ground. It needs the wisdom of God, the intelligence of God, and the power of God to accomplish this. I think the idea here is you cannot succeed if God is not in charge. And that really is the story that we're going to read when we get to the 36th through the 39th chapter of Isaiah, where Hezekiah is going to redeem his people. Now, that being said, I'm not saying Hezekiah is the one redeeming them. It's the Lord. But it's Hezekiah as the king. Remember, the king represents the Lord. And so in Hezekiah's day, after Assyria's wrecked everyone, Assyria gets wrecked. And that it's kind of this reversal. That's kind of what chapter 9, verse 4 says. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. What that's saying is that the king of Assyria is going to get wrecked like he's wrecked everyone else. He's the rod, he's the staff, he's the yoke, and it's overthrown. Now notice, there's going to be a rod and a staff and a yoke that the Lord's going to have. And so these images are juxtaposed, and they're, they're constantly put forth because Isaiah is poetic, and he's inviting us to think about this. So with that in mind, let's go to the 10th chapter. The 10th chapter is talking about God's power over the Assyrian king. Notice verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, the staff in their hand is my indignation. So the Assyrian king, in one instance, is described as the rod in God's hand and as a tool. But when the tool has done its job, God puts the tool down. And so when Assyria takes out Israel and the Lord's done with them, then he says, you know, I'm done with you. But lest you think you're the tough guy, you're the genius, you're the brilliant one here, that's what this chapter is about. And I love verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. That's it. It's not you, Assyria. You're not the mighty one. I used you as a tool to do my job. And now that I have, I don't need you anymore. So the message is simply, don't think it was you. You are not the mighty one here. God was the mighty one here. And, and there's a big image here throughout the 10th chapter, even though Israel's been destroyed. Notice it's, it pops up over and over again, verse 20, verse 21. It's in verse 22. The idea that a remnant shall return. This is indicative of Isaiah 7-3 with Shir Jashub. In other words, a remnant of Israel that will escape of the house of Jacob. That's verse 20. They will return. So 
Verse 24, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a little while, and the indignation shall cease. So he's not going to come and wreck you, but he has. He has wrecked these other nations, but don't worry. The Lord's speaking to specifically to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The 28th verse to the end of this chapter is basically this procession of the nation of Assyria coming closer and closer to Jerusalem to wipe it out. And then notice verse 33, behold the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with the terror and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down and the haughty shall be humbled. So the Lord's using the king of Assyria as this tool. And then it says, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. This is the Assyrian king. There's a couple ways to read this, but like the arch tyrant in the Mesopotamian myth, I mean, if you're a nerd, if you've ever read the Epic of Gilgamesh, tablets four through six, that's what Gilgamesh does. He cuts down the cedars of Lebanon. And so that's kind of how the king Sennacherib of Assyria is portrayed as this mighty warrior that's cutting down the thickets. But it could also be indicative of this is God using this tool to do this, to cut down the forests of Lebanon. Now remember, trees represent people, so this is also the people have been cut down. Welcome to Isaiah. you got to know the regions roundabout. But once you kind of get into the weeds, you're like, oh, Isaiah's pretty cool. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go to the 11th chapter. This is really the last big chapter. Chapter 12 is millennial, and it's only six verses. The 11th chapter is about this tree that's been cut down. And it has a rod that's coming out of it, and it builds itself into a new tree. I would recommend that you read Doctrine and Covenants, section 113, in connection with this. But big picture, this is the story of the tree being cut down, and there's going to be a new tree. Israel will grow. It will come back. Now, speaking of that root of Jesse, Doctrine and Covenants 113 says it's a descendant of Jesse, so royal line of David, and a descendant of Joseph that would kind of assist in building this tree back up. Elder Bruce R. McConkie, after quoting section 113, makes this declaration in his Millennial Messiah. Are we amiss in saying that the prophet here mentioned is Joseph Smith? to whom the priesthood came, who received the keys of the kingdom, and who raised the ensign for the gathering of the Lord's people in our dispensation? And is he not also the servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there is laid much power? Elder McConkie clearly sees that Joseph Smith has such a prominent role in the rebuilding of this tree, the regrowing of this tree, that he has to have been referred to here, that a tree's going to get cut down, but it's okay. It has strong roots, and it's going to come back. And in coming back, it had to involve Joseph Smith and the restoration. It's interesting when you read this in connection with section 113, that this rod that's spoken of is this servant. Verse 4, thus saith the Lord, it is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly a descendant of Jesse as well as of Ephraim. And then you take Bruce McConkie's comments about that being the prophet Joseph Smith. I really like that. Another reading of this is that this rod that comes out that builds the tree is the servant. And what if it's multivalent? In other words, what if it's every servant that builds up the tree? And this stump that's been cut down is Jesus, but it also represents his house 
or the kingdom or his sons and his daughters. And so what if we're all part of this beautiful image of this tree that's growing up again? And when I teach this, I would recommend you do this. I would actually draw the stem or the stump, and I would draw the rod shooting out and talk about this image of the tree and how it fits. And it's interesting how in verse 11 of Isaiah 11 talks about the Lord will the second time recover the remnant of his people. And he'll over and over again, it says that he'll set up an ensign to the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel from the four corners of the earth. That's verse 12. And I love the end of verse 13. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. We're putting together broken things and the Lord is going to make a way. That's verse 16 for it to happen. This week's come follow me ends in chapter 12. And I'm just going to say this. It's a beautiful chapter of just everything is fixed. Sometimes you need to read the last chapter when you're in a difficult chapter. Sometimes you need to know that the story ends well. When my kids and I watch a movie and there's a scary part, they look at me like, Dad, why are we watching this? And I always just kind of smile and say, don't worry, it ends well. And then they can deal with the scary part a little bit better because they know it's going to end well. So I think the Lord and Isaiah are throwing in, this is a scary time for Israel with Assyria being so powerful, and are they going to conquer us? And I know we've received promises that we're going to survive and a remnant's going to survive, but this is a scary time. And I think they're looking at their dad saying, how does the story end. And chapter 12 says it ends well. This is a millennial day where all of us from every dispensation are looking back saying, God was with us and we are good. And here we are in this millennial state and everything has been fixed. Beautiful. And with that, we will end this podcast. We will see you again next week when we cover Isaiah 13 and 14, 24 through 30 and 35. Thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.